Last week, uh, we kicked the series off by talking about how uh, many, if not most of us, uh, once upon a time, typically in childhood, uh, maybe during your teenage years, uh, you were told by someone that you loved and trusted or loved or trusted uh, what to believe. And, and for many of you, you just went with it. Uh, many of us, we just signed on the dotted line and we said, yeah, if that's what you say I'm supposed to believe, then that's what I believe. But the people that we loved and trusted, they told us what to believe, they told us what not to believe, but, but rarely, if ever, did they explain to us why we should believe what they were telling us that we were supposed to believe. And so consequently, our beliefs were just borrowed and the convictions that we have were merely coached uh, from someone else's perspective. And we said last week that none of us should be content with borrowed beliefs or coached convictions. You shouldn't be content with borrowing someone else's belief, not knowing why you believe what you believe, and I shouldn't be content with that. Uh, you should own your belief, I should own my belief. And if you believe what you believe merely because someone you love and trusted told you to believe, it, whether it was a parent or a grandparent, whether it was a teacher, a professor, whoever it was, if you believe something merely because someone told you you should believe it, that's not a really good reason to believe what you believe. So here's what I want to ask as we get everything started today. Here, here's the question. Why do you believe what you believe? And when's the last time you thought about it? Why do you believe what you believe? Sure, you know what you believe. You don't think about that a lot, but if somebody pushed you on it, you, you can make a list of things that you believe. And if you heard someone else talking about something, you would say, hey, I believe that, or you know, I don't believe that. But why do you believe what you believe? Uh, a guy by the name of James Sire, he, he's an author, and a few years ago, he'd go around to college campuses and he would do a seminar uh, talking about why people believe the things that they believe. And, and he said, basically, there's four reasons that people choose to believe what they believe. And it's one of these four reasons. And he said, here's the reasons we believe what we believe. There's a sociological reason, there's a psychological reason, there's a religious reason or a philosophical reason. And people, when they believe whatever it is they believe, they choose to believe it because of one of those four things. And he makes a case that there's only one of those really that makes for a good reason to believe something. Uh, he says that sociological reasons are, you know, family and friends. You know, it's what your family believes. It's what your friends believe. It's the tendency and the over, you know, the overarching agreement of culture and society. Uh, but here's the problem. Uh, as much as we love family and friends, they can be wrong. Uh, we know that culture and societies, entire societies can be wrong. Uh, just look at Nazi Germany, uh, entirely wrong, hellishly wrong about really important things. So to believe something just because of family, just because of friends, just because of culture, just because of society, not a great reason to believe something. It's a reason, just not a good reason. And then he says there's a psychological reason people choose sometimes to believe what they believe. And it's because they find it comforting or it's comfortable for them to believe that. Uh, it gives them a peace of mind. It gives them, you know, hope. It gives them a sense of meaning and purpose. It gives them an identity. And the problem with that, that all sounds good and well, but the problem is that there are people who find those things in conflicting areas. So, you know, just to find what is, you know, what I believe based on some psychological feeling or some psychological state is not a good reason to believe something because someone else who may be the contradiction of what I believe may feel the same things. So it's not an objective, very truth. It's just something really subjective and psychological. So he said, 
that it's not a good reason to believe what you believe. And then he says there's the religious reason. You know, many of us, we understand this one, and maybe we fall under that. But it's because a pastor, a priest, or imam uh, said so. It's because our church said so. You know, the, the denomination that we were raised in said so. It was because the Bible said so, or the Quran says so. And, and he makes the case that this is not a good reason to believe something just because your pastor said it, just because a religious leader said it, just because your holy book said it, because here's the problem. Who gets to determine whose holy book is right? Everybody believes their holy book is right and other people's holy book isn't so right. You know, Christians believe theirs is inspired and authoritative and non-Christians don't look at the Bible as inspired or authoritative. So it becomes they said versus they say. And, and so it's not a great reason. And so he makes the case for the fourth reason, which is a philosophical reason. And the historic idea of philosophy is it is the pursuit of truth based on logic. It is the pursuit of truth through logic. And he says that when someone comes to the philosophical place where they decide, hey, this is what I believe, it's because they have found their system of beliefs to be consistent, coherent, and the best explanation of the facts that they have been exposed to. And he says that's the reason people should believe what they believe. It should be a philosophical approach. It should be the pursuit of truth based on logic. It should be consistent, it should be coherent, and it should be the best explanation of the facts that you have been exposed to. And so here's his overarching point. Something, something is worth believing if it is rational, supported by evidence, and best explains the data. That's what makes something worth believing. It's worth believing if it's rational, supported by evidence, and the best explanation of the data that you have. So don't believe something just because someone told you. And don't believe it just because you read it in one place on the internet. Make sure you actually pursue truth and make sure you investigate and make sure you ask questions. All of us should know what we believe and all of us should know to a certain degree why we believe it. And here's the thing that a lot of us don't do concerning those two things, the what and the why. We're just not honest about it. We know what we believe and sometimes we know why we believe it, but we're just not honest about it. Whatever reason you have for believing what you believe, you need to know it, even if it's a bad reason for believing what you believe. Because the reason that we're doing this series is that you're ready to talk about what you believe and you're ready to explain why you believe what you believe. And this is just not for you, but this is for the sake of other people that may ask you questions about faith. This may be about your daughters or maybe about your son. This may be about your grandchildren. This may be about a family member, a coworker who randomly just walks up to you one day and says, hey, I know you're a Christian. Tell me what you believe. And then after you tell them what you believe, they say, well, tell me why you believe that. And you're ready for that. Peter, who was one of Jesus's original 12, he was like generation 1.0. He saw Jesus in the flesh. He heard Jesus with his own ears. He was an eyewitness to Jesus's sermons, his life, you know, his miracles, his death, his resurrection. He was there for it all. And Peter, towards the end of his life, he wrote a letter that we have in the New Testament. And he wrote this letter to Christians living throughout the Roman Empire. And at that particular time, it was not an easy thing to be a follower of Jesus. It wasn't an easy thing because the emperor was Nero and he was persecuting Christians. So it was not an easy thing to be a Christian. And it wasn't an easy time to try to convince someone else or persuade someone else why they should consider becoming a Christian. So here's what Peter wrote to Christians then. And I think he's still saying this to Christians today. So this is what he says. He says, always be prepared to give an answer or a defense to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. 
When they ask you what you believe and why you believe it, your responsibility is to be ready. My responsibility is to be ready. And here's the thing. Peter infers some things and Peter assumes some things. He assumes that you and I have given consideration and pursued an investigation concerning what we believe. He assumes that you know what you believe and why you believe it and you believe it for a good reason, that you don't have borrowed belief, but you have owned belief. And here's what else that Peter assumes. He assumes that you and I will be close enough to people who don't believe what we believe to have conversations with them. He assumes that we'll have conversations, not confrontations with people who don't believe what we believe. He thinks that Christians ought to be in the habit of hanging around people who aren't Christians and that believers in God should be in the habit of hanging out with people who don't believe in God. And inevitably, when that happens, there are gonna be times when someone who doesn't believe what you believe and doesn't agree with what you agree to be true is gonna ask you, what do you believe? And then maybe they'll say, well, now tell me a little more about why you believe that. And so Peter, he goes on, he says, and when you have these conversations, do this with gentleness and respect. No cheap shots. You know, if you're a pastor and you get up in front of people, don't make fun of what people believe or don't believe. Don't take cheap shots because cheap shots are never cheap. They're costly. You can't give an insult and gain influence at the same time. You just can't do it. So when you're having a conversation with someone, if you're gonna do it with gentleness and respect, here's something you have to do beforehand. You have to consider the strong side of their side. You have to consider the strong side of their side and the weak side of your side. And when you consider the strong side of their side and the weak side of your side, you're ready to have a gentle and respectful conversation because you realize that both of you are pursuing truth. And there's always something for you to learn and something for them to learn. And so you go into it with a gentle mentality and with mutual respect and specifically you respecting them because you are ready to give an answer for why you believe what you believe. So. Here's the question we're gonna talk about today, all right? We're gonna spend the rest of our time here. And, and what I need you to do today is, I need you to shake off any lethargy that you have. I need you to embrace the caffeine you've already put into your body. And I need you to sit up and lean in because if you zone out for just a moment, you may not catch back up. This is a snow day, it is a cold day, but it's gonna be a day where we all just kinda need to perk up a little bit and listen because we're gonna be talking about a lot of important things and we don't have a lot of time to spend on those things. So here's the question we're gonna talk about today. Why do you, you, why do you believe that God exists? 75% of the world believe that God exists. The vast majority of people here undoubtedly, statistically would say that you believe that God exists. So let me ask you a question. Why do you believe that God exists? Because surely you've thought about it. You know you believe that God exists, but why do you believe that God exists? Now, first of all, before we talk about this, let me just say, no one can prove or disprove the existence of God. This is not what this question and conversation is about. No one can prove or disprove the existence of God. In the end, no matter if you disbelieve in God or believe in God, that last step is always gonna be a step of faith because there are some things that we still just don't know. So why do you believe in God? Now, the way that you should handle this question personally or the way that you should handle this question if somebody is asking you this particular question is you should understand that the only thing that you can do in, in terms of answering this question is that you consider the evidence. 
and you logically evaluate the evidence and then you decide what is the best explanation for the evidence because that's the best reason to believe what you believe. So you gather all the evidence for God, against God, you evaluate it rationally and logically and then you decide what is the best explanation for the facts and the evidence and the proofs that you have been able to be introduced to. Now, if you get asked this question, by your kids, your grandkids, family member, you know, person that you've invited into your small group that you know is not a follower of Jesus, whatever it is. When you get asked this question, let me give you a couple of helpful things not to do, okay? Here they are. Don't appeal to scripture and don't appeal to experience. Don't appeal to scripture and don't, you know, appeal to experience. Don't say, okay, that's a great question. Let me open up my Bible and show you this verse. Because interestingly enough, when you read the scriptures, the scriptures really don't present a full-throated defense of the existence of God. There's just an assumption of God from the very beginning of the Jewish scriptures. And as you read through, the existence of God is just assumed in the Jewish Bible and also in the Christian New Testament. So, you know, don't use the scriptures because chances are the person that you're talking to, they don't think of the Bible in the same way that you think about the Bible. You think it's an authoritative book, you think it's inspired, but they don't. So it's not gonna do any good to open up the Bible and say, okay, here's a verse of why I believe that God exists. Second thing you shouldn't do is you shouldn't appeal to experience. Don't tell them about a dream you had once upon a time. Don't tell them about the Holy Ghost goose pimples that you got back there at the tent revival when you were 27 and God changed your life because other people who don't believe in your Christian God have had experience which they believe have helped to change their life. So experiences are subjective, they're psychological, and they're not a great objective place to begin when you're trying to have a conversation concerning such a big question about why do you believe that God exists? So th this is how we're gonna consider it today. Why do you believe that God exists? Or if you don't believe that God exists and you happen to be here, you're watching online, why should you consider believing? that God exists. So again, a little, little FYI, if you're not typically a note taker, here's what I would maybe encourage you to think about doing today. Pull out your iPhone, pull out your Android device and open up your notes app and just jot down some things as we're going along to stay engaged because some of this, I'm just gonna throw a lot at us because this is important and I think that it's important. It may not be interesting to everybody, but it should be important to everybody, okay? So why do you, why do you and why do we believe in the existence of God? I'd like to give you three reasons of the many reasons, but I'm probably only gonna, only gonna get through two of the three, all right? I'm gonna spend the most of the time on the first one. So why do you believe in the existence of God? Why do we believe in the existence of God? Here it is, the first reason. Because the age of the universe, the age of the universe, why do you believe in the existence of God? Well, I believe in the existence of God partially because of the age of the universe. Science says, science says that the universe is about 13 billion years old or specifically uh, around 13.7. Some rounded up to 14, some rounded down just a little bit. But, but most of you know, the modern science journals and books that you're gonna read is gonna date the universe somewhere around 13.7 billion years. Now, the reason that this is important is this right here. Science did not always believe that the earth and the universe had an age. They didn't always believe that the universe had an age. Matter of fact, up until the 20th century, the conventional accepted idea among science was this, that the universe was eternal. 
The universe was eternal. So we're living in a day where this is brand new territory for science. And science says, okay, the earth is 13.7 billion years old, but up into the 20th century, science believed that the earth, uh, that the universe rather, was eternal. That, that it was timeless, that it had always been. And one of the biggest proponents of this eternal universe or this static universe theory, one of the biggest proponents of it was a guy by the name of Albert Einstein. You've heard of him, right? Albert Einstein, who's known you know, for his theory of relativity. And basically the theory of relativity, it, it, it is such deep stuff that most of us, even if we read it you know, in that little book for dummies book, we still wouldn't understand it because that's just how smart he is, but basically in his theory of relativity, uh, Albert Einstein determined that the law of physics are the same everywhere. And he postulated that space and time were interwoven into the same continuum that we now call the space-time continuum. I mean, I mean, he was so deep. I mean, he was so intelligent. He would even say things like this, that people could experience the same event at different times because large objects affected the space-time continuum and that time could actually dilate and people could experience time. I mean, really, I mean, can you imagine being that smart? I told you, you should pull out your notes. I, I told you, you should have had a little bit extra caffeine and I know what you're thinking. Are you telling me I got out of bed on a snow day in January to come to church for this? But trust me, this is important and you're gonna find out why in just a moment. But Albert Einstein forever changed the way that people thought about space, about time, about mass, about energy, and about gravity. In 1916, in 1916, Albert Einstein, to use his own word, became irritated. He became irritated because of his mathematical calculations. His calculations, as he was considering this theory of relativity, his mathematical calculations were pointing him in a direction of truth that he did not want to be true. He had always subscribed to this idea that the universe was eternal. But according to his calculations, you know, in 1916, his ideas about relativity and his calculations concerning those theories of relativity were leading him in the direction that the universe was not eternal that the universe actually began at a fixed point somewhere in the finite past. Now, he didn't want that to be true. And even though that that was an apparent fact based on his theory and based on his math, he didn't want that to be true because it seemed to point to the apparent fact that the universe was the gigantic effect of some larger cause. See, if the universe had been eternal, then the universe was not an effect. And if the universe was not in effect, then there was no need of a cause to bring about the universe into effect. And so he believed that the universe was eternal. And when his calculations pointed him down the road that led him to believe or led him to begin to start believing that the universe actually, according to his calculations, was not eternal. It actually started at a fixed point somewhere in finite past. He wanted to not believe that so bad, Albert Einstein plugged in bad math. He fudged the math on purpose so that he could keep believing in an eternal universe. A Russian mathematician called out his elementary era in his algebra, so to speak, and then he owned it. He owned it and admitted that he fudged the math because he really didn't want to go in the direction that it was taking him. So, you know, he plugged in bad math and then it led to a guy by the name of William de Sitter, who was a Dutch astronomer. Now we're getting somewhere, so just stay with me for just a moment. 
It led a man by the name of William de Sitter to take the theory of relativity uh, that Albert Einstein had brought to the world. And based on William de Sitter's calculations, he determined that if the theory of relativity was actually true, then the universe was expanding. And if the universe was expanding, then the universe must once upon a time been at a fixed point beginning. That the universe, in other words, was not eternal, that it had a beginning point. Now, this was a big deal because about five years later, in 1927, a guy that you've heard of before, his name was Edwin Hubble. Edwin Hubble, who was the chair of the Mount Wilson Observatory in California, he looked through his 100-inch telescope and he looked up in the sky and what he saw changed everything. What he observed through his telescope is what science refers to as the red shift. Literally, what he saw through that telescope was the universe was actually moving away from us. He confirmed what William de Sitter said has to be true if the theory of relativity is actually fact. He confirmed what Albert Einstein did not want to be true, that the universe was not eternal. It actually began at a fixed point somewhere in the finite past. So what that means is that if the universe is expanding away from us, that if it were a VHS tape or a cassette tape or the DVR, and we could rewind the universe and see what happened over time, if we could rewind the universe, the universe would come back together. And as it gets closer, it would get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller to a singular point of a mathematical nothing. That the universe is something that mathematically came from nothing. And so this was such a big deal because this meant that once upon a nothing, there was a bang and there was something. That's what science was determining, that once upon a nothing, there was an explosion and then there was something. And then the universe started to expand away from itself. Not into space, but space itself was expanding. Albert Einstein was so troubled by all of this. In 1929, he went to the Mount Wilson Observatory with Edwin Hubble, and he himself looked through the telescope to confirm with his very own eyes what Hubble had said, and when Einstein looked up into the universe, he saw the red shift, he saw the universe moving away from us, and he knew that it was just as his theory had predicted. The universe was not eternal. The universe had a beginning. And when he saw that, this is what Einstein said. Einstein says, I want to know how God created the world. I am not interested in this or that phenomenon in the spectrum of this or that element. I want to know his thought and the rest are details. And since that time, science has continued to confirm that the universe is not eternal, that the universe had a beginning, that it started from a singular point 
from nothing. Now, this is a really big deal, and we're going to see why this is a really big deal, that the universe is not eternal, that it actually had a beginning in just a moment. But since those times of Edwin Hubble and Albert Einstein, science has continued to confirm that the universe is not eternal, that it had a beginning. And there's really, you know, many, many areas that have confirmed this, but let me give you three, okay? Here's three areas of science that have confirmed this, that the universe had a fixed beginning. The laws of thermodynamics, something called cosmic background radiation that you don't care anything about, and galaxy seeds, which sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie. It's like galaxy seeds, what? The laws of thermodynamics, for those of you who paid attention in school, basically said that in a closed, isolated system, there's a fixed amount of energy and it's decreasing. So what that means for the universe is that the universe is winding down. And because the universe has not lost all of its energy yet, that means it's not an infinite thing, that it is finite. And because we've not reached the end of our energy, we are not an eternal universe. We are in a universe that had a beginning. So we're running down, therefore we can't be eternal. Now, again, I know what you're thinking. Why in the world do I care about any of this? Because this is a conversation that you need to know at least something about. And you should care a lot about because this is a reason for you and for other people to consider a belief in God, or it should be one of the significant reasons why you believe in God. Now, in 1948, in 1948, a group of scientists began to predict that if the theory of relativity is true, and if the universe is expanding, if that's all true, then there should be what is called background radiation all throughout the universe that is left over from that initial bang, from that initial moment when out of nothing came the universe. And in 1965, a few years later, in 1965, two scientists from New Jersey, kind of by accident, but two guys who would end up winning the Nobel Prize, two scientists from New Jersey would discover background radiation, what science now refers to as cosmic background radiation. It is literally the light and the heat that is left over from the Big Bang. That's what it is. It's the heat and the light that's left over from that initial moment of when the universe came into existence. And this is exactly what science predicted, but not only that, but science, once they discovered the cosmic background radiation, they begin to postulate that if there's cosmic background radiation, then there should be temperature changes in that radiation or ripples within that background radiation. And so in 1989, NASA took $100 million of your tax money and built a satellite. And it was called COBE, C-O-B-E. And its entire mission was to go learn about cosmic background radiation. In 1992, after they'd collected all the data, after they'd received the images from this satellite, astronomers looked at the findings and said, this is the holy grail of astronomy. Stephen Hawking, who perhaps is one of the most revered atheists, smartest men on the planet today, he said that what that satellite captured the pictures that it brought back was perhaps the most important discovery of the century, maybe of all time. And not only did the satellite that NASA sent up into space find those ripples, but it found that there were precise measurements and precise arrangements within that ripple, that it was almost as if it were designed the ripples were so precise that the initial explosion that brought the universe into being, if it had been any faster or any slower, the universe would have collapsed upon itself. 
If there had been a slight variation one way or the other at that initial moment of explosion and expansion, then none of us would be here today. George Smoot, who was an astronomer and project manager for NASA, he looked at those, those, those pictures that the satellite brought back of the background radiation and the ripples within it, which seemed to be fine-tuned, which said to the people who evaluated the data that the explosion seemed to be so precise that if it had been any bigger or any smaller, the universe would have collapsed back on itself and the universe would have never come into being. This is what he said after looking at the pictures. It's like looking at the machining marks from the creation of the universe. In another place he said, it's like the fingerprints of the maker. And the implications are this, the universe apparently was a gigantic effect from some unknown larger cause. The universe was not eternal. It had began at a fixed point somewhere in the finite past. And the reason that you should care about that and the reason that I care about that is, and the reason that you should be able to at least articulate on some level a little bit of this is because of the law of causality. And, and here, here's how it comes together. Everything that has a cause, everything that has a beginning has a cause, cause and effect. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. We know that, that's true, that's fact. The universe had a beginning. Therefore, the universe had a cause. This is why this is so important. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe has a beginning. Therefore, there must be a cause to the universe. Some uncaused first cause. Robert Jastrow, who is founder of NASA's Goddard Institute of Space Studies, he was also one of the successors uh, to Mount Wilson Observatory after Edwin Hubble. This is what he said in his book, God and the Astronomer. He said this right here. He said, when an astronomer writes about God, his colleagues assume he is either over the hill or going bonkers. In my case, it should be understood from the start that I am an agnostic in religious matters. So he said, I want you to know who I am and where I'm coming from. He says, now we see how the astronomical evidence, the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. Are you kidding me? From a satellite? He said, the details differ, but the essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. The chain of events leading to man commenced suddenly and sharply at a definite moment in time in a flash of light and energy. Astronomers now find they have painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in the cosmos and on the earth. And they have found that all of this happened as the product of forces they cannot hope to discover. And then he goes on to say this, and this is so profound, that there are what I or anyone else would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. That if the universe had a beginning and all the forces of nature and all the laws of nature that exist within our universe, if all of that came at a fixed point in time, if it was not eternal, if it had a beginning, it must have had a cause. And this natural effect must have had an unnatural cause or a supernatural cause, which simply means outside of the natural. 
An agnostic astronomer, Alexander Vilenkin, said this at Stephen Hawking, again, you know, theoretical physicist, you know, perhaps the most famous atheist in all the world. I mean, just an incredibly ingenious man. Here's what he said at his birthday party. All the evidence is that all the evidence we have says the universe had a beginning. Again, the reason that's important, everything that has a beginning has a cause. And if the universe has a beginning, then the universe must have a cause. And Stephen Hawking himself is on record as saying, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. So this is, this is where it takes us, two options. Two options. This is where all that we know scientifically, this is where it brings us to these two options. Either no one created something out of nothing. That's option one. No one created something out of nothing or someone created something out of nothing. Based on all the proof, evidence, rational, logical conclusions, deductive reasoning, and all of that, which makes more sense? Which is a more reasonable conclusion? What is a more rational conclusion based on evidence that we have in hand? That no one created something out of nothing? Or that someone created something out of nothing? That if the universe had the beginning, then the universe had a cause. It was an eternal, uncaused first cause. If time, space, and matter came into existence at a specific point in the finite past, here's what that means. Then the cause of time, space, and matter must be something that is timeless, spaceless, and immaterial. That's what it has to mean. That if time, space, and matter had a beginning, then something timeless, spaceless, and immaterial must have been the first cause of it the uncaused, eternal first cause. And beyond that, in addition to that, if time, space, and matter had a beginning, and if that's the effect, then the cause must be timeless, spaceless, immaterial, powerful to create something out of nothing and personal to decide to do it in the first place. Now, something timeless, spaceless, immaterial, powerful, and personal. Does that not sound a lot like the theistic God that many of us believe in? And doesn't it make sense now in a lot of science, in a lot of fact, in a lot of proof, how the Jewish scriptures begin in the first place? In the beginning. This was written before science ever came around to the conclusion that the universe had a beginning. It wasn't until the 20th century that science said, yes, the theory of relativity, yes, the universe is expanding. If it's expanding, there was a moment in time when something came from nothing and there was a first cause, it was just, there it is. There was a beginning. And the Jewish scriptures opens up. A piece of literature, thousands of years old. In the beginning, God, timeless, spaceless, immaterial, powerful, personal, created heavens and the earth. And what astronomers have figured out and what physicists have figured out, that at the moment of the Big Bang, at the moment of whatever happened, whenever it happened, that moment when out of nothing came something, there was light and heat. Sounds a lot like Genesis 1, when the intelligent creator of the universe said, let there be what? Light. 
There was light. There was heat, of which science now has taken pictures of. And every time that a satellite goes up in space, and specifically Kobe, when it went up into space and it took pictures of the universe, it was actually taking pictures of the past. I know it's mind-blowing, right? It was actually taking pictures of the past because it takes so long for light to get to us. And so it was actually taking pictures of the past to let us know what had happened beforehand because of the light and the heat and the radiation left over from the moment that out of nothing came something. Can you imagine that even 2,000 years before Jesus showed up on the planet, a Jewish king by the name of David penned these words? In light of all that we've been talking about, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. They do. Of course they do. Science is even coming around to it. Day after day, they pour out speech. The stars, the galaxies, they pour out speech. Not in day, they reveal knowledge. Well, of course they do. When we take pictures, they're teaching us something. When we discover something new, they're teaching us something. They have no speech, David says. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. 700 years before Jesus showed up, Isaiah, a Jewish prophet, delivered a message on behalf of God to the nation. He says, yet to whom will you compare to me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes. This is what God invites them to do. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens who created all this. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. And now we read those words and a lot of what we know about science and what science has discovered and it's like, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? That if the universe had a beginning, that it must have had a cause. And that cause must have been an eternal, uncaused first cause. That time, space and matter had a moment when it came into existence. And therefore, whatever caused it must have been timeless, spaceless, and immaterial, personal, and powerful. Why do you believe in God? Well, I believe in God because of the age of the universe. Don't get hung up on billions of years, millions of years, let it bother you. The earth, the universe has a beginning. That's good news. That's what we found out in Genesis 1 verse 1, that there was a beginning there was a moment that when the universe, if it could be rolled back onto itself, there was a moment when none of it existed and out of nothing came the universe through some type of explosion, some type of creation, some type of supernatural intervention that threw the universe into vast expansion. That's why we believe. It's a good reason to believe because you have to come up with something timeless, spaceless, and immaterial, powerful, and seemingly personal to explain. So either you're left with no one took nothing and created something, or someone took nothing and created something. And you have to wrestle to the ground, which one is more logical? Which is most rational? Which is the best explanation of the facts at hand? And this is where we leave it. This is the second reason, and it's right along with the first. I believe in the existence of God because of the fine-tuning of the universe. The fine-tuning of the universe. 
that everything seems to be precisely manufactured, that everything seems to exist in the right quantities, that everything seems to be exactly the way it has to be in order to support life. Scientists say that we exist in what is called the Goldilocks zone. You know, the porridge is just right. That we are exactly as close to the sun as we can be. If we were any closer to, it'd be too hot. If we were any further away, it'd be too cold. It's just right. That in our atmosphere, there's a 21% oxygen concentration. If it was any higher, there would be fires everywhere and no life. If it were any lower, we couldn't breathe, we would suffocate. It's just right. If the speed of light was any different, it would affect all the other constants within our universe and there would be no life. If the speed and the rate of the initial explosion had been any faster, any slower, when the universe came into existence, the universe would have collapsed back on itself. We have the exact amount of water vapor in the atmosphere that we need to support life. Any more, any less, life couldn't be supported. The speed of the Earth's rotation, just exactly what it needs to be, otherwise the temperature change between night and day would be too great. The thickness of the Earth's crust, exactly what it needs to be, if it was too thin, if it was too thick, it would affect the existence of life. Perhaps one of the things I find most impressive is the gravitational pull of the planet of Jupiter. Yeah, that's right. That gets me fired up. <laughs> Ought to get you fired up. The gravitational pull of the planet of Jupiter. You say, well, why would that got to do with anything? Because the Earth would have been destroyed long ago if it wasn't for that large planet Jupiter. And it has a specific gravitational pull on its planet. It acts as the Earth's vacuum cleaner. The earth would have been wiped out by massive space material a long time ago, but what happens is it gets sucked into Jupiter's atmosphere and Jupiter takes care of it for us so that we don't get smacked down by runaway space material. And it's just exactly what it needs to be. Gravity, just the way it needs to be. Carbon dioxide levels, just exactly what it needs to be. And we could go on and we could go on and we could go on. But one of the scientists, and I want to give you these guys and, and let you hear them because I'm not a scientist. This is not my expertise. I've read for weeks, read for probably two or three months on this to try to get ready for this series. But, but this is, I'm trying to give you the smartest people in the field, many of them atheists and agnostic. But one of the scientists who discovered the background radiation, one of the two guys from New Jersey, this is, this is what he says. He says, astronomy leads us to a unique event. A universe which was created out of nothing and delicately balanced to provide exactly the conditions required to support life. He goes on to say that in the absence of an absurdly improbable accident, absurdly improbable accident, the observations, which is science, observation of modern science seems to suggest an underlying, one might say, supernatural plan. The best data that we have are exactly what I would have predicted. Now, listen to this. This is massive. This, this is huge. The best data we have are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. Let me tell you, you might be smart, but you didn't discover cosmic background radiation. And this is a guy who did. And he said, I... I'm examined this and this all just seems so perfectly tweaked for life to exist. Paul Davies, a physicist, he said this, I cannot believe our existence in this universe is a mere quirk of fate. We are truly meant 
to be here. Why do you believe in God? Because of the age of the universe. The universe had a beginning, therefore the universe had a cause. The universe, time, space, and matter, once upon a time didn't exist, it came into existence. So therefore the eternal uncaused, first cause, must be timeless, spaceless, immaterial, all powerful to take nothing and create something impersonal to decide to do it to begin with. Why do you believe in the existence of God? Because it takes too much faith to believe in the chance of a cosmic explosion coming from nothing, creating everything that is in just the right quantities to support life here on our little planet. I don't have enough faith, as Norman Gosler put it, to disbelieve in God. The facts, the proof seems to indicate that the universe had a beginning. It had a cause, an eternal, uncaused first cause, timeless, spaceless, immaterial, powerful, and personal. And apparently intelligently designed, governed, oversaw, sustains all that is constant in order to allow life to exist where we are. Either no one took nothing and created something, or someone created something out of nothing. And I think the rational conclusion, I think a rational hypothesis, I think a rational direction of thought to pursue is that perhaps there is someone outside of time, space, and matter who is powerful and eternal, who we call God. In the beginning, God, whenever it happened, however it happened, Christians believe that God stepped into the space-time continuum and revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. That this all-powerful God loved his creation. That the creator stepped inside of his created work. And Jesus came to demonstrate that this timeless, spaceless, immaterial God loved each of us. Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen God. In another place, Jesus said, God is spirit, timeless, spaceless, immaterial. The eternal, uncaused, first cause, outside of time, space, and matter. No wonder the psalmist said, the heavens declare the glory of God. No wonder the prophet Isaiah said, look into the heavens and see if there's not a whisper. Even if you don't want it to be true, there's a whisper leading you to think it may be true, that he's there. He's always been there and he always will be. To which the psalmist would say, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Heavenly Father, 
I pray you take what we're talking about today and just let the words sit where they need to sit. Take root where they need to take root. And I pray that for those of us who believe, that we begin to have a better reason why we should believe. For those who don't believe, that perhaps we find a reason to consider believing. And I pray that in the hours to come, the days to come, and the weeks to come, that you would allow us to recall what we need to recall, think about what we need to think about. Because God, in all of your timeless, spaceless, immaterial grandeur, we believe you have a plan for us and we believe that you love us personally and you know us by name. So God, let us sit under the weight of what our universe is discovering, what we are discovering through science and let us logically evaluate it and pursue facts until it takes us to truth and truth perhaps until it takes us to faith. In Jesus' name.